scripture reading this morning will be from Ezra chapter 6 verses 14 through 18. Ezra chapter 6, 14 through 18. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Adu. And they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the degree of Cyprus, Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Prussia. And this temple was completed on the third day of the month, uh, Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered for the dedication of this temple of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, corresponding to the number of tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites and their orders for the service of God in Israel that is written in the book of Moses. Good morning. It's good to see you here today. It occurs to me uh, that the screen just told you that there are some lesson notes out on version, but I think that's incorrect because I think I did not get that done. So if you're looking on version and you're not finding them, don't be frustrated um, or think that you're doing something wrong. It was me who did something wrong and those are not there. So you've got paper this morning. So just wanted to let you know. Uh, imagine what it must have been like to have been a part of that great celebration because that's what we were just hearing read. The, the celebration that goes with the rebuilding of the temple. How many of you were here the day this facility was dedicated and opened and, and opened up for business? How many of you all were a part of that? It's been quite a while now, but, but I'm sure as you think back, you can still remember some of the excitement of the time and some of the, you know, we planned and we, we worked toward and finally we were in. And, but I bet you also remember that there were some days where there were some struggle and there were some days where we wonder if we're ever going to get done. But in the end, you stayed with it and you got it done and it was well worthwhile. Uh, being around EU a couple of weeks ago, uh, being across the street at the school, it reminded me of back when we lived in Georgia and we went through a building program. Uh, we sold the church building we'd been using and when we sold it and moved out, we had to move into a school while they built our new building. And there was some excitement with that because we knew something better was on the horizon. But there were some weeks where you got tired of having to rearrange that classroom when you got done with it and make sure that you had it just right because we were renting that space and we had to do that. But there were some long days involved. You think about the story this week. And you think about these Jews who are returning from exile. And, and it must have been a roller coaster of emotion. The, the idea that we're coming home, we're leaving Babylon, we're going back to Jerusalem, we're going back to rebuild. But there was, there was criticism. And there were delays and there was fear and finally to the point that the work completely stopped. And then there was God weighing in and God calling out the people. And in the end though, they came back to work, they got the job done, and were able to read about that celebration in Ezra chapter 6. 
Well, I want to spend a few minutes going through what the story chapter 19 covers this week. You recall that it was God's plan all along. God never intended to leave His people in exile. His plan all along was to, to bring them home. And, and Jeremiah had talked about that. Jeremiah had prophesied. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And so Jeremiah had talked about it. And then God, in an upper story way, He moves the heart of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. He moves his heart to, to issue an edict, to bring them back. Now, again, this was according to God's plan. Isaiah had talked about what would happen. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and He will perform all my desire. And He declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, Your foundation will be laid. And so again, the plan is being worked out just as God had said it would be. And so with that, go with me to the beginning of Ezra. Notice Ezra chapter 1 and notice the first few verses of this, of this book. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of the place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah uh, and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And so 50,000 people are moved. 50,000 Israelites, 50,000 people of Judah... A population of Hardin County, maybe 25,000 or so. So twice the county population here, that's the group of people that sign on to say, yes, we, we want to go back. We want to get involved in helping to rebuild that temple. We'll sign up for that. And so Ezra 3 explains that as this group begins to head back, the first thing they do when they arrive, now their charge is to go back and rebuild the temple. So the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar of the Lord because they need to restore worship. They need to restore sacrifice according to the law of God. And so they rebuild the altar of the Lord. And then they lay the foundation. And on the day that the foundation is complete, and sometimes you do that, you stop midway through a project and you celebrate progress. Well, on that day, it's a celebration. But not everybody's cheering. Because you see, there's some folks that day that they remember they're some of the priests and some of the Levites, some of the, some of the folks who are heads of households, some of them who were younger when the first temple was destroyed, some of them who remember what had been. On that day, they're sad. They're, they're weeping. Notice what goes on at the end of chapter 3 of Ezra, beginning in verse 12. 
Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So there's likely some sadness on that day, remembering what had been and regretting what God had put them through, not because of God, but because of their disobedience. But the foundation's laid. And so the work has begun. And then, as you get into chapter 4, as they begin working on the temple itself, there's opposition from the inhabitants of the land. There are people who don't want to see the temple rebuilt. They don't want to see the presence of God back in Judah. And so the first thing they do is they show up and they try to get on the inside. They, they, they say, we're following the same God you are. Can we help? And Zerubbabel says, no, you're, you're, you're not God's people. You're not really our friends. You're not going to help us. And so then the Bible says, they made it their mission to do everything they could to make the lives of these exiled Jews who are returning, to make their lives miserable. Notice verse 4 of Ezra chapter 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then when you get to verse 24, you see the result of this constant problem, this constant negativity, this constant challenge. Verse 24 says, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. People have done the math on this, and maybe you've done the math, but the math on it is they stop work for 15 or 16 years. And for us, what were you doing in 2000, the year 2000? I mean, that's how long this project sits with nothing going on. And you've all been around it, and if you were here when this was being built, I'm sure every time you drive by this building as it's being constructed and changed and changed into this great place that it is now, you'd look and you'd say, well, man, they did this this week, or that got done this week. There's an excitement when something's bustling and something's being prepared. Have you ever had to drive by an abandoned construction site? It's kind of depressing. Because when you drive by a site where there was work going on and now it's not going on, the reason it's kind of sad is because you know there's a sad story there of some kind. Somebody started and they could not finish or chose not to finish, and it becomes an eyesore. Well, in the case of these Jews, there had been discouragement, there had been fear, there had been frustration. But how in the world when God is behind this and God moves the king to send you back and God puts the funding in place, how in the world could you allow it to just come to a grinding halt? I mean, after all, this is the purpose. This is the reason God has sent you back to Jerusalem. You are going back for the specific purpose of rebuilding this place and you've just stopped. You've let it, you've let it fall apart. And I'd like to know how it played out. 
they're going to be called out later for turning their attention to their own priorities. I'm wondering if there are some guys as they got into this. Somebody said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a few days off, a couple of weeks. I'm going to go work on my house. I'm going to go work on my stuff, but I'll be back. And I'm wondering if it was one of those where over time a few people left and a few people more left and, and before long it just was a day where nobody showed up to work. I wonder if they never intended for it to go the way it did. And I'm sure in the beginning there was a sadness. You'd walk by that site that had been worked on and it was partially done and you'd kind of be sad about it and and think, man, one day we'll get back to that. But you know, the more days you walk by that, a year passes and another year, you don't even notice it anymore. So finally, God has to wake them up. And he uses Haggai the prophet. And and one of the values of the story is you turn over to Haggai and you're able to see his message and you're able to say, okay, well that was going on in Ezra. It helps us understand when these guys are doing their work. Well, the message from Haggai is God is displeased. In fact, he uses this statement and we're going to read it in a few minutes, but he's going to say, consider your ways. Because he's reminding them God has set you up with the return, he set you off with, up with human authorization for it, he set you up with the funding for this. It's all in place, but you've just walked away. And God's message through Haggai, it's both powerful, it's motivational, and it gets them refocused on their purpose. In verse 12, we see of Haggai chapter 1, you see Zerubbabel and the people obeying and bowing down in reverence. And the work resumes. And so when you turn back to Ezra chapter 5 and chapter 6, they're they're back to work and with the renewed work comes renewed opposition. And so finally Darius, he goes into the archives and he digs around and he finds the original decree from King Cyrus and he reads that decree. And so he issues a decree that says, listen, this must be done and let no person hinder the work of rebuilding God's temple. And so they finish, and you see this great celebration that we read about or was read for us at the end of Ezra chapter 6. Well, just for a few minutes, I want us to go back and think about and drill down a little bit on this work stoppage. Because when you think about what's going on with these Jews, these Jews who you would think they'd be happy to be heading home, you would think they'd be happy for, you know, whatever God, whatever you say I need to do, I'm going to do. They go home and they give up on God's mission. They give up on God's purpose for about 16 years. And again, there are reasons that might seem legit to us. The Bible talks about discouragement, and it talks about fear, and it talks about frustration. Yet walking away from the project, when they did that, God wasn't pleased. Because in a very real way, they're not just walking away from a project, they're walking away from their purpose. Go back with me to Haggai chapter 1. That's right near the end of your Old Testament. It's sandwiched in there between uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's a brief book, a brief letter, but, but notice several of these verses out of the first chapter from this prophet, starting in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people says, or this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. In other words, 
my project, my priorities are more important than God's priorities. That's the message from the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You, you put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. He says, you've become selfish. You've made it all about you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, and on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord their God. See, as I read that, and obviously we want to find the value of that in, in something that can help us be better today. It makes me wonder sometimes if the church today is ever guilty of losing focus to the point that we almost end up with a work stoppage. I want to talk about this in terms of two questions as we finish up this morning. And here's question number one. What big thing of God's have we possibly allowed to become a small thing to us? Because that's what's going on with the Jews. They've minimized what God said is important. Now, husbands and wives, we understand how this works. You know, big things, small things, priorities at home. There's something that needs to be done, and it's a higher priority to one of us than it is the other of us. And when that happens, a lot of times there's a problem, there's friction. We talked about this one in class. I've, I've got a front porch on my house. It's, it's wood. And it partially wraps around, so it's rather large. And the people that built the house years ago, they used to hang all kinds of ferns out over the front porch. And they'd water them, and the water would drip down. And so I have all these little places where the wood had started to rot. And you can't just fix the place that's rotten. you pretty much got to do the whole thing. And so my project is, as I have time, I'm replacing the flooring on my front porch. The reason I get away with that pace is because we don't use the front porch. My wife, she doesn't see the front porch on a daily basis. So it's not on her radar. She doesn't care. When you go inside, sometimes there are things that are very important to her, and sometimes they're simple. You know, take that WD-40 up there. Please oil those doors that are squeaking. I've not even noticed that the door's making noise. But life's better when I elevate my level of interest up to what she thinks is important. And we understand this as young people. When we're, you know, sometimes our parents, I remember growing up, and sometimes mom and dad would be very focused on something. And I didn't understand why that issue, whatever it was, was so important to them. But I realized that my life was immeasurably better when I elevated my level of interest to, you know, into whatever it was they thought was important. 
And so we understand how this works. So again, I ask, what big thing of God's is it possible that maybe we've allowed to become a small thing to us? What does God want to see from this church more than any other thing? How might you answer that question? Would your answer be evangelism and outreach? Would your answer be genuine love? Genuine love for each other? A genuine love for those who who need to know about Jesus who haven't heard yet? Would your answer be a more sacrificial spirit? See, I'm asking whether or not we as a church, whether we're actively living out the mission and the purpose to which God has called us. I'm asking, is it okay to answer, to look around and say, well, well, I believe we're better off than a lot of congregations. I I think we're okay where we are. Are we okay with an answer like that? And I'll tell you, I believe this congregation is better off than a lot of churches. But in an honest moment, could there be areas where a sharper focus on our primary mission would bless us? And the reason we self-examine is is it's very possible to be going through the motions of church while actually being in a work stoppage. And we can't afford that. Here's the second way I want to ask the question this morning. Is my focus on God's mission or is my focus on me? Because in Ezra, the people, they begin well, they're working hard, but the frustrations and the constant you know, people attacking them, they lose their focus. They lose their passion for the temple project. They lose their passion for a decade and a half. And they turn away and they start on their own priorities. I'm going to go over here, I'm going to build my house. Nobody gives me a hard time when I work on my house. So I'm going to go over here. See, and this isn't God saying that a nice home is bad. This is God saying that when you get selfish and you turn to your own interests and you ignore what I say is important, that's what God is saying is a bad thing. It's misplaced priorities. In fact, in their case, he was actually allowing bad things to happen. That's why you read about this famine, this drought in Haggai chapter 1. God says, well, you've ignored my mission, you've ignored my purpose, and so things aren't going well for you. See, even for us in 2016, if we allow our focus to be diverted away from our mission and from our purpose, bad results can play out in a variety of ways. Now, it's not the idea that God is sending a drought or God's going to send us a famine. But think about some of the things that you've seen happen. Think about some of the things that you've heard about. Think about some of the things that possibly you've even experienced. Instead of, you know, the church gets to a point where instead of actively being involved in building the church, where we, 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 we embrace a mentality of saying, well, we're just going to be happy to hold on. We're just going to be happy to maintain where we are. Or we get into this mode of having more discussion about what we're against rather than talking about what God wants us to be and where God is expecting us to go. Or sometimes the body gets inwardly inwardly focused and quite frankly begins fussing. 
ever realize that, that usually if I find myself, and this applies at home, it applies at work, it applies in lots of circumstances, if I find myself fussing and upset about something, it's probable that I'm thinking about me and that I'm not thinking about mission. I'm not thinking about the person who needs a Savior when I'm fussing about what I don't like. And it's probable that, that when I'm thinking about me, because my focus is on me, you know, I've gotten all tied up in whatever it is that's frightened me or made me uncomfortable or made me fearful, whatever it is. You know, maybe I'm fearful of, about where things are going or maybe I'm fearful about the direction of the church, whatever it may be, as if God somehow can't take care of His church, as, as, as if God's shepherd somehow can't lead the church in the direction it needs to go. But I'm caught up in fear. Or maybe it plays itself out in this scenario where I'm constantly, instead of thinking about mission, I'm constantly debating with my brothers and sisters in Christ because they don't believe something exactly the way I believe it. And so I get all my focus on debating with them. You see, the problem is, when I'm debating constantly like that, I don't have focus on the mission. I'm thinking about me. Now, hear me. I'm not saying doctrine is unimportant. God wouldn't give us such a great book if doctrine wasn't important. And, and healthy debate, that's something that, you know, we need to be able to talk. And, and one of the ways we learn is through debate and study. We need to do that in a healthy way. All I'm saying is if I, if I jab at my brother or my sister so much that I neglect my mission and purpose, nobody wins, everyone loses, and especially those who need Jesus. And we end up frustrated, we end up discouraged, just like those working on this temple project had become. And when new Christians arrive, see, we don't want them to be discouraged. One of the other negative consequences that occurs when I find myself thinking too much about me is that my shepherds then have to be thinking too much about me. And see, my selfishness can move the leadership of the church away from mission and away from looking out the windshield to where the church needs to go. When they've got to focus on me and what I'm up to, it takes their focus off of where the church needs to be headed. Let me boil it down this way. The question becomes, do I love the Lord enough and everything that the Lord designates as being a big thing, do I love all of that enough to be okay with leaning in and being all in on whatever it is He wants rather than on what I want? We love the people we're married to that much. And when we don't, we really need to go see someone because that's the kind of love that's supposed to be in a marriage. We love our children that much. But it's interesting that sometimes we treat our spiritual families like we don't love them that much. And saddest of all is if we ever treat God like we don't love Him that much. And we do that when we ignore what He says is important. I firmly believe we all want the same thing. We all want to be in heaven one day. When it's all said and done, and we got to remember that when we're having a problem or when there's discouragement, it's, it's Satan at work. He, uh, the Bible talks about how he works against us. He's active. In some of the study material for 
the story, the reference material for this week, there's a story uh, that Lucado shares about what he calls his closet of lost passions. And he says there's this closet in his house and it, it has the telescope in it from when astronomy was his going to be his new passion. And there's this unopened box of stepping stones for the garden from when gardening was going to be his new passion. And there are these pictures that never ended up in a scrapbook because uh, that passion fell beside the way fell along the wayside and the point is God's big thing mission purpose what he's left us here to do that cannot afford to end up in our closet of lost passions even when we're fearful even when we're uncertain, even when we're tired, even when we're frustrated, even through hopefully what are brief days of discouragement. Because you see, there's something that goes on. People are leaving this place, talking about this earth. We're in worship for about an hour today. And the statistics say that about 6,400 people will leave our planet in any given hour. And you know as well as I do, when somebody leaves this place, there is only one question that matters at that point. Did they know God? Were they right with God? Had they, have we gotten the good news to them about God? That, that's the only question that matters at that point. And that's why we've got to keep our focus on the project that God has left us here to fulfill. We're going to sing about coming home Is there a spiritual closet of lost passion that you need to dig into today? Do we need to get back to the mission in some way today? Is God's big thing, is that what's most important to me today? God is constantly calling us home. He's constantly calling us back to our calling, for lack of a better term. And so today, if you realize that you need to start over, if you need the church family praying with you or for you, you can ask for that to be done publicly. Find one of the shepherds. Find one of us and we'll pray together after the service. Maybe you're ready to be born in the kingdom of God, to begin your walk with Him. You have that opportunity today as well. If you have a need, please let that be known while we stand and while we sing.